This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So right now I'm reading uh, John Krakauer's book. Uh, John Krakauer wrote uh, Into Thin Air. He wrote um, Into the Wild. And I'm reading his book, uh, Where Men Win Glory, The Odyssey of Pat Tillman. Uh, it's the story of the NFL player who, uh, inspired by the events of 9-11, uh, decided to walk away from the fame and the success and the riches of the National Football League and enter into uh, the military. And so in his book, uh, Where Men Win Glory, uh, Krakauer actually quotes uh, from Tillman's own uh, diary and writings uh, quite frequently. He quotes him extensively. Tillman was a great writer. And uh, this is a rather long passage of Tillman's explaining why he left the NFL and joined the military. Tillman writes, my life at this point is relatively easy. It is my belief that I could continue to play football for the next seven or eight years and create a very comfortable lifestyle for not only Marie and myself, but be afforded the luxury of helping our family and friends should a need ever arise. The coaches and players I work with treat me well, and the environment has me, uh, excuse me, and the environment has become familiar and pleasing. My job is challenging, enjoyable, and strokes my vanity enough to fool me into thinking that it's important. This all aside from the fact that I only work six months a year and the rest of the year is mine. For more reasons than I care to list, my job is remarkable. However, it is not enough. For much of my life, I've tried to follow a path I believed important. Sports embodied many of the qualities that I deemed meaningful. Courage, toughness, strength, etc. And at the same time, the attention I received reinforced its seeming importance. In the pursuit of athletics, I have picked up a college degree, learned invaluable lessons, met incredible people, made my journey much more valuable than my destination. However, these last few years, and especially after recent events, I've come to appreciate just how shallow and insignificant my role is. I'm no longer satisfied with the path I've been following. It's no longer important. And then Tillman, he goes on to write in that same paper that he wrote talking about his decision to join the military. He says, in the end, I believe this decision will make our lives fuller 
richer and more meaningful. And so what's the point? I think Krakauer's title is incredibly profound, although clearly misguided. The title is Where, when, where Men Win Glory. The word glory does not mean applause. Tillman had that. The word glory means weight, significance, meaning. Tillman joined the military because he had this ache and this appetite for glory. This appetite and this ache to live a meaningful life. He wanted to matter. The Bible clearly teaches that we all experience this and we all know this to be true. If we will just slow down long enough and reflect Long enough, we will realize that every human lives their life in search of glory, meaning, identity, significance. That we all look to define ourselves or create an identity through a particular achievement or a particular success. That we all want to prove our worth by having that particular relationship or by having the general sense of approval from all who live life with us. In order to rest, we all hunger for glory. We all ache for approval. We're living life, dying for someone to say to us and over us, glory, well done, you matter. Tillman slowed down long enough to realize that he wasn't going to get that in football. The Bible teaches that reality that we experience and know to be true, but then the Bible goes further and teaches that that most of us will come to the correct realization that there is a God and that he is the one who must approve of us and say to us, glory, well done, you matter. Many, if not most, will realize that the approval they need, the benediction they crave, is of divine proportion. After having humans bless us, we're still needy. We're less than full. Our souls are not satisfied. We realize that the smile, the blessing, and the approval of God is what we actually need to have glory in order to rest in peace. And I don't mean when we die. So to review the Bible, the Bible very wisely teaches that we are all seeking glory. The Bible also teaches that most will realize that that glory can only come from God. But then the Bible teaches, particularly well in our passage today, that there are two approaches that humans can take in getting God's approval, in gaining his declaration of love, in having his acceptance. Jesus uses the word righteous in verse 9. It's not simply to be innocent. It's positively to reach the standard. It means to achieve. Look at verse 14. Jesus uses the word justified. It means to be declared righteous. It means to be declared sufficient by a judge. And again, what you have in the parable today is two men seeking what they ultimately need. God's approval, God's declaration that they're righteous, God's acceptance, God befriending them, God enjoying them. This will give them the weight they need to live life. But the two men, both seeking the same thing, that that satisfaction of the soul, they take two radically different approaches to get that approval. And what we're going to see in our text is that only one of those approaches, if you will, works. So let's study the parable this way. Two ways of approaching God, the one approach that works and indicators of our own approach. So two ways for approaching God for the purpose of winning glory. The one approach that works, the one that is effective, 
and then indicators of our own approach, uh, regardless of what our official theology tells us. What does our life show in terms of what we actually believe? Okay, so first, the two ways of approaching God. Look at verse 10. These are the two figures in Jesus' parable, and they embody the two approaches uh, that humans take in gaining God's approval. Two men went up into the temple to pray, that is to commune with God, that is to relate to God. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now we've talked about both of these groups extensively in this series, but I want to summarize the reputations that each had, which is why Jesus chose them for his parable. First, the Pharisees were a devout sect within Judaism. They they were largely uh, loved and thought highly of uh, by the general populace. They were, socially speaking, really good guys. Second, the, the tax collectors in Israel were hated by the general populace, and they were hated for very good reason. Uh, the Jews were an occupied people. They had been conquered by Rome, and the Romans exacted from the Jews an inordinately high rate uh, of taxes. But the Jews, uh, excuse me, the Romans uh, didn't uh, exact the tax from the Jews personally, but, but instead would find uh, Jews who would be willing to pay the Romans in advance and collect uh, the taxes on their behalf. And so Rome, at the beginning of the tax year, would leave with all of their money for the year, and the tax collector, often at sword point, uh, would hold, uh, uh, um, uh, would hold the, their, their own fellow citizens hostage until they paid uh, the tax, and, and, uh, and oftentimes uh, uh, far beyond what was right. And then the tax collectors would keep the surplus for themselves. They were shakedown artists. They were mafia Uh, They were brazenly self-centered and greedy. And and Jesus says that both of these men went up into the temple to visit with and to connect with God. And so remember at this point in redemptive history, and this point in God's story, the temple was where God's special and localized presence uh, resided. God's Shekinah glory was present in the temple in the Holy of Holies. And so both are going up to the temple for the purpose of having God's friendship, approval, acceptance, and blessing. And listen to the Pharisee's prayer in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is his approach to God. This is his pitch for getting God's blessing, God's justification. If you read verse 9, you'll see that Jesus is actually telling this parable to a particular audience. They are those who, quote, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The word trusted is the word for persuade, to induce with words, to win over. And Luke uses an ongoing tense in this verb. And so the Pharisee is there convincing himself and convincing God that he's good or or good enough compared to other people. You know, he doesn't steal, he doesn't oppress, he doesn't cheat on his wife, he prays a lot, and he gives a lot of money to the temple and to the poor. This is his approach. On the other hand, the tax collector, the Al Capone, verse 13 Standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. On the one hand, I've done this and this and this and this and this and this, and people really like me. On the other hand, people, for good reason, really hate me, and my only hope is mercy. Now, I want you to know it's not shocking to us because we've heard it before, because we've already had the text read to us this morning, but it would have absolutely floored the original audience to hear verse 14. I tell you, 
the tax collector went down to his house justified. That is declared righteous by the judge, declared sufficient by the judge, approved by God rather than the other. Two ways of approaching God for the glory and the weight and the approval we need and we ache for, but only one way works. Only one of these two is effective in gaining glory. Why? Point two, the one approach that works. In our next point, we're going to look more at the Pharisee. But for right now, I just want to ask the question, why was the tax collector's approach effective? Uh, why, why did the blatantly sinful, brazenly self-centered man go home justified? Why was his soul satisfied with the blessing of God that day? And of course, it boils down to his prayer. It boils down to his request. Look, look at verse 13. Our, our translation says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, there's a, there's a, frequent, uh, there's a frequently used word in the New Testament for mercy. And that frequently used word, it means this, sympathy, compassion, uh, to give someone a break, to not force someone to experience the fair outcome of their actions. There is that frequently used word in the Greek New Testament, but this is not that word. The tax collector here, and ultimately Jesus, who's the creator of this parable here, he uses a very rare word and only shows up a few other places in the New Testament. It's the, it's the Greek word holoskomi, and it means to atone, to expiate, to propitiate. The tax collector, he's not just asking for mercy. He's not just asking for a break. He's asking for atonement. He's asking for God to make propitiation for him, for God to provide for him a sacrifice that would pay the price of his obvious sins. And so Jesus puts in the tax collector's mouth a prayer for God to pour out his wrath earned by the tax collector, onto someone else. He's asking for God to intervene in this situation in such a way that he will never be punished for his sins. You see, if he, if he only asks for a break, for sympathy, for mercy, he lives another day, but not in the freedom of knowing that his sins are paid for and the wrath of God is propitiated. Do you see the difference between seeking mercy, that is a break, and seeking propitiation, that is atonement? I'll illustrate it this way. Ever since becoming a pastor, uh, I've had the same accountant do my taxes every year. And, and as an ordained minister, my tax status and my tax filings are somewhat complex, more complex than I know how to handle uh, myself. And it's been, <clears throat> it's been great to have this uh, highly qualified, uh, heavily sought after, uh, very successful accountant. It's been great to have him handle my interactions, which have been multiple uh, with the IRS. And, and from day one, this accountant, my accountant, has served our family for free. Now, he has never said, I'll always do this. But each year I reach out to him, and each year he handles it for free. It is pure grace. It is pure mercy. I don't deserve it in any way. It is not a fair or just transaction in the sense that I do not pay him what he is worth, which on the one hand is incredibly great, but on the other hand, it's a little nerve-wracking this time of year. Why? Because I can never afford this accountant if he ever decided to do the fair thing and charge me for his professional services. So in a sense, I have to go to him every year seeking mercy, seeking 
a break. And every year as I go, I know that the only right, uh, if you will, the only right thing for him to do would be to stop doing it for free. So think about it. What would give me the ultimate rest in this relationship as I email him this week? (laughs) Only this, to know that this incredible service would be mine forever. That it was not just a grace to me, but that it was fair, just, and right. The fair, just, and right thing between me and my accountant. How could this possibly happen? How could I rest in this relationship and rest in the certainty of the ongoing grace and mercy? It could only happen if someone else stepped in and paid the price, paid the debt that I owe for the past 10 years, and paid forward into the rest of my life whatever the just fee is for his services. You see, the tax collector doesn't just ask for mercy or for a break. He asks for heloscomy. He asked for propitiation. He asked for payment to be made for his sins so that he would never have to fear paying for them himself. He would be free. And this justification, this declaration of righteousness, this acceptance from God would be his, not just because God's gracious, but because God is just as well. So think about it, the Pharisee, the one who convinced himself that he was righteous in himself. He approaches God to tell God how great he, the Pharisee, is, and he expects God to justify him, to declare him righteous and approved and accepted based on his works. But he does not, verse 14, go down into his home justified. But the tax collector knows that he's a sinner, a gross, dirty, defiled sinner. He knows that he's selfish and greedy. He knows that he is an offense to the very presence of God. But look, look at what he doesn't do. He doesn't stay away from the temple. He's come to the realization that he needs God's blessing and God's benediction if he's going to have any life and any glory and any weight and any significance and any meaning, any identity. So he doesn't stay away. And when he approaches the temple, what does he not do? He does not lie. He does not promise to do better. He does not ask for another year of a break. He asks for atonement, for his sins to be covered and and for him to be in God's presence forever, not just by grace, but because it's his right. This is an incredibly bold request. The request is essentially this, and I want you to listen listen very carefully. He doesn't say, give me a break. He says, kill another in my place. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. It worked. Why? The only other time this verb is used in the entire New Testament is Hebrews 2, 17. It says this, Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus made propitiation. Jesus propitiated for the sins of the people of God. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to say in the book that not only was Jesus this high priest who offered up this sacrifice that satisfied God, but Jesus was this high priest who offered up himself as the sacrifice that satisfied God so that the people of God don't have to pay for their sins. Think about our gospel promise in Romans 3. We heard it earlier in our liturgy. Sinners are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In verse 26, not read for you earlier, but my favorite verse in the entire chapter, Paul says that God is both just 
and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So God is the justifier. He's the judge who declares righteous, approved, accepted over those who believe. But in doing this, he is not just gracious, he is also just. He's just and justifier. He's just in justifying. Our confidence and our rest does not come from God being gracious, but it comes from God being gracious and just. To mix metaphors, to significantly mix metaphors, because of Jesus, God can't choose to not do our taxes next year. Even if the Pharisee was perfect, he'd have to keep being perfect year after year after year to keep God's smile. The tax collector knew that he wasn't perfect, and he said, with all due respect, and I mean that, beating his breast, not lifting his eyes to heaven, with all due respect, kill another, a perfect other, in the place of me. Now again, why would it matter to have justification with God? I was driving by myself from Kansas to Florida about seven or eight years ago, and I somehow missed a phone call from my parents. I was 30. Once I realized that I had a voicemail, I called the voicemail and I had enough bars to get it somewhere in the Midwest. And and I heard um, a very simple message from my parents. They had simply called to tell me that they were thinking about me, that they were proud of me, they were honored to be my parents, that they were absolutely certain that I had what it took to be a good husband and dad and pastor. And they didn't have any specific reason to call other than to say, we love you, we're proud of you. We enjoy you. I had to pull over because I could not stop crying. Something deep inside of me was so touched by this incredible gift of encouragement and delight and approval and justification, this declaration from my parents. Now listen, I had really good parents. They encouraged me all the time. It wasn't as though I was weeping because I had longed for these words for 30 years. I was weeping because humans at the core are made for significance. They're made for meaning. They're made for glory, for approval, and for delight. And we gain this glory in the spoken blessing and love and approval of another. But listen, my parents' voicemail touched me. uh, it, It touched something at my core, but it could never ultimately satisfy the core hunger of my soul. Only God can do that. Only God knows enough and only God is big enough for it to matter when he says, glory, well done, you matter. But none of us can achieve this in our lives. You can only gain it, win it, have it by saying with all due respect, kill another, a perfect other in my place. That other is the creator of this parable. He is the one who thought up the tax collector. He is the one who thought up the Pharisee. He is the one who thought up the prayer. The other is Jesus lived beautifully, died horrifically. God forsook him, and he looks at you, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Listen, I I would not tell you to go tell God to kill another unless God told me to tell you to tell him that. I would not tell you to go tell God to kill another unless God in this parable told me to tell you to go tell him that. That's the prayer that gains Justification, 
righteousness, and approval. So to review, humans live life uh, with an insatiable appetite for glory and approval. At some point, most of us begin to realize that the hunger for and approval, the hunger that we have for that approval is of divine proportion. And once we see it this way, we, we begin to pursue God's approval and love through one of two approaches, either in arrogance, we try to earn it, or in humility, we receive it by grace through faith in Christ. So which is your approach? I'm going to assume because you're sitting here that at some level you've gotten to the place where God probably has something to do with you enjoying life. Most of you, I would say this morning, haven't heard anything new in the grand scheme of things. My my hunch is that maybe you learned something about the parable, but your life paradigm has not been radically altered by Luke chapter 18. I think most of us had, I passed out at the introduction, a quiz that said, is your approach works or is your approach grace, mercy, propitiation? You would have said grace, mercy, and propitiation. But I titled this third point, indicators of your approach. (laughs) Because I want us to consider how our emotions and how our actions belie or contradict our words. I want us to think about how our psychology and how our sociology, how they need to catch up with our theology. Okay, so for a few minutes, I'm going to look at the parable. I'm going to look at the characters. We're going to go a little more in depth and we're we're going to consider not just what's our theological approach to God, but what's our functional approach to God. And we can know it through our emotions, our actions and our words. First, so I I actually have five quick questions. We're, We're almost done. Five quick questions for you to reflect on and for you to dialogue over that can indicate what your real approach is to God. Okay. First, does your focus tend to be internal or external? The works righteousness approach to God forces you to be external in your assessment of yourself and others. Look at the Pharisee's prayer. Every element of his prayer is external. I don't extort, I don't depress, I don't cheat, I fast, and I tithe. But then Jesus says in verse 9 that it's the heart of those who are like this Pharisee that in their heart is contempt and hatred for others. That's the exact opposite of what the law calls for. Verse 14, Jesus says that pride and self-exaltation is in the heart of the Pharisees. Notice what the Pharisee does not say. God, I'm patient, and I'm meek, and I'm humble, and I'm loving. He says, I tithe. He does not say, I renounce all that I have in generosity. He speaks of external realities and not internal realities. As humans, we can only see external things, and so if we're going to feel good about ourselves and judge other people, we're going to have to keep it on the surface. So first thought, maybe this week as you move forward, is the focus internal or external? Second, do you go beyond God's law? Do do you elevate your free choices in the Christian life to the level of God's law? So look at verse 11. The Pharisee starts out well and good from a biblical perspective. Extortion, injustice, adultery, those are all contrary to God's law. But verse 12, the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. The Old Testament required that the Jews fast one time a year on the Day of Atonement. The Pharisee had added 103 fast to the law. End of verse 12, literally says this, I give tithes of all that I buy. The Pharisees would go to the market and they would buy something and they would tithe 10% off of that something just in case the 'er ne'er-do-well they bought it from hadn't tithed. And after doing that, Pats himself on the back and looks down at others. Do we in our choices about education 
and diet and apparel and worship style? Do we take these choices and elevate them to the place of God's law in order to look good and look down? Third question for reflection that we might see in our lives the indication that we approach God through works and not through Christ. How do you think of yourself in relation to others when it comes to sin? Or said a little differently, how do we spiritually, uh, spiritually, do we basically think we're better than everyone else or do we basically think we're worse than everyone else? Look at what the Pharisee says in verse 11. Remember, he's a fictional character. Jesus takes him to the extreme to make a point. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He doesn't say, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man or I thank you that I'm not like some men. He says, I thank you that I'm not like other, meaning all men. Look at the tax collector, the one approaching God by grace and atonement. God, literally, he says, there is a definite article in the Greek. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In our mind's eye, are we basically better than everyone else? And if people would just listen to us for a little while, we could prove it. Or are we basically worse than everyone else? Paul, at the end of his life, was the foremost of all sinners. Phone a friend on this one. Don't answer that one for yourself, okay? Just be like, how do I come off? In conversation, relationship, am I basically better than everyone else if you would just listen to me, or am I basically worse than everyone else? Fourth, how's your prayer life? Do you show neediness and dependence in prayer, or are you sort of there to process life with God and tell God how you're doing? There's this beautiful ambiguity in the Greek in verse 11. I'm going to prove, you, prove the ambiguity to you by giving you the four major English translations of the Bible. Remember, the Greek is the original. What we have in our hands, they're translations. They're faithful and they're good. They're the word of God. But this will show you that the translators aren't really sure what to do with this ambiguity. Uh, the ESV says, obviously, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. The old King James Version reads this way. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. The New American Standard, probably the most literal that we will read, says this. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. In the NIV, it reads, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. The tax collector desperately needed God to hear his prayer. Kill another in my place. The Pharisee doesn't even really need God to be there for his prayer. If God's there, he's telling God how great he is and how good it is for God that he's on his team. If he's praying to himself, He's calling himself God, and God is not there. Last question, most personal for me. Can you go home? Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Look again at verse 12. I fast twice a week, semicolon. I give tithes of all that I buy. And and I think that we should have there a dot, 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 or an et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The man, verse 9, is constantly persuading himself that he's righteous. Jesus doesn't, in verse 12, use a conjunction right before the last phrase saying this is the last phrase. He doesn't grammatically bring the sentence to a close. He just changes camera angles and goes to the tax collector. The tax collector says his prayer, he puts it in the Lord's hand, and he goes home. In verse 14, when Jesus says, rather than the other, he's not just saying that the Pharisee uh, wasn't justified. He's also saying the Pharisee didn't go home parable ends and the Pharisee is still convincing himself and God that he's righteous. 
that he's sufficient, that he's good enough. Now, you'll have to reflect and dialogue on how this applies to you, but for me, it's like this. A good man and a good friend walked into my office this week and said, among other things, a lot of other things, he said, Ted, you're really hard on yourself, and you really stink. He said another word. You really stink at receiving compliments. He's right. I can't go home. I can go home in my theology, but my actions and my emotions belie my words. And the way I work, and the way I do relationships, and the way I parent, and the way I approach sermons, and the way I live my life, I can't go home. I can say in my theology, I'm accepted in Christ, but in my psychology and in my sociology, I functionally say I'm approved by my works, and I'm not confident yet. Can you begin to see in the fifth question that if our lives, if our psychology and our sociology would line up with our theology, we'd have such incredible freedom and we'd enjoy such amazing community, the entire world would be begging to be a part of what we're doing. But also, I wanted to end this way because in these five questions, I want us to be desperately needy for communion. Not just by all the things I did wrong this week, which is a lot, but we need to be needy for communion for all the things we did right for all the wrong reasons this week. To come up here to experience the death of the other in our place and to go home satisfied, blessed, approved, and adored. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you I thank you that your life was so beautiful that only sinners could benefit from it. Jesus, I thank you that you came not for those who are well, but those who are sick. That is us. I thank you that you did not come for the righteous, but for the sinner. That is us. I thank you that your righteousness is so rich and thick and full and pervasive and sufficient that even our doubts and unbelief this day and this week are covered. God, would you give us insight in how our good deeds is a living out of doubt? Would you show us how our performance is a living out of unbelief? Would you give us radical freedom at the core in your spirit and the gospel through the faith that you give? In your name we pray, Jesus.